This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on the assessment of chest pain. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Chest pain is a common presenting complaint, accounting for about 5% of all emergency department visits in the US. There may be benign or life-threatening causes, and chest pain is usually divided into cardiac and non-cardiac causes. For the serious cases, it's vital to make a fast diagnosis and to start treatment without delay. To tell us how to achieve this, we have on the line Professor James Brown, who's Professor of Emergency Medicine at Wright State University, Boonshoff School of Medicine in Kettering, Ohio. And importantly, Jim is also author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on the assessment of chest pain. So Jim, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you, what's the most important thing to remember about the assessment of chest pain? I think it's probably just to be to evaluate the life threats uh, from the beginning and keep those at the top of your differential to start. There's probably about six, what I think of as life-threatening causes. I, I think everyone's uh, primary consideration is acute coronary syndrome. And I think that that's the one that we default to when we see a patient, is that what I'm seeing? But there's a couple of other, while much more rare, pretty bad diseases. And keeping a broad differential, I think, in your initial assessment will, um, will, keep, will keep us from, uh, from missing something important. I think the one that needs to be ruled out immediately, but is almost always very easy, is tension pneumothorax. Those patients usually have an apparent reason for why they are, although a spontaneous pneumothorax, I guess, could become tension, although that's even more rare than anything else. What if the patient had a stab wound in their chest? That would be uh, certainly a very uh, emergent consideration and much more likely on the list than acute coronary syndrome. Next would probably be pulmonary embolism then uh, thoracic dissection or aortic dissection, then cardiac tamponade. And tell us, what do you think that we should do urgently when we see somebody with chest pain? Um, I think it's going to depend on the environment. In the, in the emergency department, we're going to put the patient on cardiac monitoring. Uh, we may or may not initiate oxygenation, depending on what their pulse oximetry is. If it's over 95%, we probably won't. Uh, if it's over 90 and it's most likely cardiac, we still probably won't, or if the patient has pulmonary disease. Uh, we'll start an IV on the patient in case we have to give them any medications urgently or emergently. And I think probably the next most important thing for most patients is to get a 12-lead ECG. Tell us about recent advances in the diagnosis of, of chest pain. I think the most important one we've seen lately is uh, high sensitivity troponins. I think that's allowed us to safely send a lot more patients home for outpatient workup or to uh, move their workup down the road over the next 72 hours or so uh, where they may get other, uh, other evaluations like stress testing. We've not missed as many MIs as a result of the high sensitivity troponin. The downside of it is, is that probably we're doing more testing because it's maybe a little oversensitive. 
Uh, and I think we're still trying to figure out where the sweet spot is there. That's the singular one that, that really strikes me. Certainly advances in CT scanning and the uh, quality of the CTs over the course of time with 64 and 128 slice scanners lets us evaluate thoracic dissection and pulmonary embolism a lot quicker. And lastly, and I think this is still coming in a way, is the use of ultrasound to evaluate things at the bedside for the average clinician versus having to send patients to radiology. Okay, great. To take the last one first, ultrasound. What conditions would you be looking to diagnose or rule out at the bedside with ultrasound? You certainly can fairly easily see pneumothorax and uh, pericardial effusions with, with ultrasound right at the bedside. Also, uh, the evaluation of um, cardiac function. And lastly, to see if there's right ventricular dilatation, which may be associated with pulmonary embolism. All those things can be looked at fairly quickly and fairly easily by most clinicians. Okay, thank you, very useful. And to go back to troponin T, um, it can be raised for a number for a number of reasons, not just an acute coronary syndrome. What are the other common things in your experience uh, uh, cause it to be raised? Could you tell us? Yes, um, probably the thing that we see most commonly, you'll find it in, in patients with renal disease. It's sort of chronically uh, elevated. Also, um, another place is uh, the, the patient with actually pulmonary embolism or uh, sepsis. There's a whole host of things that will cause myocardial dysfunction or stretch that can cause uh, troponin elevation that may not be acute coronary syndrome. Okay, got it, great, thank you. That's, that's very, very helpful. Tell us about common pitfalls in diagnosing chest pain. I think the most common one is to get tunnel vision too early. I think depending on your clinical setting, we may have a, a, a bias, if you will, towards, well, it's always benign or it's always bad. I think particularly less experienced clinicians focus a lot on acute coronary syndrome and don't think of some of the other causes that can be equally life-threatening like pulmonary embolism or thoracic dissection. And many of our patients sadly did not read the textbook and don't come in with the classic description of their disease process when they show up. Interestingly, um, one of my other duties is to uh, run our simulation center for our uh, residency training program for uh, junior doctors. And we have a scenario that we do where it is a thoracic dissection but the patient presents somewhat atypically. And frequently, the junior doctors just completely miss the diagnosis. The chest x-ray looks normal. The description's a little bit atypical. And that's actually one of the lessons we're trying to teach them using the simulation is that they can't get tunnel vision. They're almost always going down the road of acute coronary syndrome. The patient's hypertensive. We The patient's initial history is, is that he has some chest pain uh, that began somewhat suddenly, but and he gets some left arm tingling. 
done not really pain but tingling and they immediately seize on that description as an acute coronary description and actually that was one of my that this patient was one of my colleagues patients if you will um, and we actually have anonymized the actual CAT scan and the actual chest x-ray from the patient so it is realistic um, which but the but the residents almost always seize on acute coronary syndrome when they when they face that patient Okay, thank you. That's helpful. And pulmonary embolism is another kind of notorious one, quite difficult to diagnose and easy, easy to miss as, as, as well. What do you think are the pitfalls in pulmonary embolism diagnosis? I think first it's not considering it, and then probably the other side of it is considering it too much. You know, there are some pretty good decision tools, the, the Geneva rule or the, uh, the Wells criteria to help at least screen the patient. And then I think where many people, at least in the States, fall down is, is that we're over-testing with CT scanning when we should actually be using D-dimer as a, as a screening tool to help us sort of risk stratify patients before we subject too many of them to a lot of radiation. The negative D-dimer will help rule out the diagnosis almost all the time, except in patients with very, very high pretest probability, either by an experienced clinician's gestalt or by high probability using Geneva rule or Wells criteria. Okay, great, right. And, and tell us more about the Geneva tool and the, the, the Wells score. Uh, they're both uh, scoring systems, if you will, that look at, that have been developed to look at criteria of patients that have had and have not had pulmonary embolism and help by looking at things like leg swelling or tachycardia as a couple of examples or risk factors like recent surgery or recent immobilization and help, um, I think, more less experienced clinicians um, to have some sort of objective criteria they can say, okay, well, this patient really doesn't have much risk or this patient has a lot of risk or they're somewhere in the middle. Experienced clinicians gestalt or, or impression is probably just as good, but particularly for junior doctors or people who don't see a lot of chest pain, uh, these rules give, some, give us a way to hang our hat on, on something objective and say, okay, uh, we have this and then this may lead me to do further testing. And, and tell us more about Gestalt, um, which experienced clinicians can can develop. What 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 is that, and and how do you develop it? You develop it, I think, by seeing a lot of patients and um, testing a lot of patients, if you will, and eventually being able to ask the right questions and without needing to specifically score patients out, determine whether or not they are low, intermediate, or high risk. But mainly it comes just from having a lot of experience, what all of us do in our training and then all of us do in our clinical practice over time is develop uh, a, a sense that the patient has is at risk for the disease or is it not risk for the disease, probably using a lot of the elements that are already in many of these scoring tools, but also intangibles, if you will, that we get just from having done it a lot. Okay.
a very difficult question. Um, if you can make the intangibles tangible, um, how would you describe them? I think that they're, um, it's things like the patient's clinical appearance, the story they tell, how they look when they're talking to you about things like, are they, do they appear to be short of breath? Um, do they look uh, uncomfortable? Do, do they really have solitary leg swelling? It's a lot of it is somewhat tangible, but eventually I think the experienced clinician doesn't need to get out a scorecard. Let's move on to another condition you, you mentioned, uh, pneumothorax. What would you say are the, the pitfalls in diagnosing or, or, or missing a case of pneumothorax? Maybe your doctors on your side of the pond are, are better at this, but I think to some extent, physical diagnosis skills have gone by the wayside um, to a great extent in this country where we rely a lot on technology. So um, I think the first pitfall is just not appreciating a change in breath sounds. And it may be somewhat subtle. It's also kind of difficult to do in a loud, busy emergency department. Uh, and then I think it's just not putting it on the differential that um, in most cases, it can be it can be picked up simply with a chest X-ray or now with ultrasound. Um, I think the last pitfall is is that many times we have a patient who's a little short of breath, and we're looking for other disease processes, and um, it's just missed because it's not something we're even looking for on the chest X-ray. And small, subtle uh, pneumothoraces can be missed. Great, thank you. That's that's very helpful. Um, Besides the ones you mentioned, what other tests do we have in our armamentarium that we didn't have 10 or 15 years ago, or, or, or are there any other tests? I think we've already talked about the two big ones, which I think are just progressively more sensitive cardiac troponins and more sophisticated or high-definition CT scanning. I think MRI is now more common and maybe more available to look at uh, certain diseases for patients who um, may not be able to um, receive dye for their CT scanning. Uh, but that's still in many ways a developing um, technology too. Okay, and, and what might MRI be helpful with to rule in or rule out? MRI, I think, is uh, can be particularly useful for uh, thoracic dissection and also to some extent for pulmonary embolism, but they're not used, it's still not used very commonly, um, mainly because CT is just so much more available and so much more useful. Okay, thank you. One, one last question. My memory of working in emergency departments, and it's a few years ago when I was a medical registrar, this is like a senior resident, um, was that people would sometimes flash an ECG in front of you and they'd say, what should we do with this patient? And you'd ask them, well, tell us about the patient. And they'd sometimes say, oh, I, we've just done the ECG. I haven't spoken to the patient yet. Does that still go on, I wonder? Every day for me, 
sometime probably between 30 and 50 times a day. So uh, any patient for whom a concern for uh, ACS is there, the technician or the triage nurse will obtain an ECG and it's supposed to be seen by a senior physician within 10 minutes. So they'll just bring me an ECG and say, here, or, the, or you might get the, you know, what's wrong with the patient? Uh, chest pain or dizziness or um, shortness of breath. And that's the only history you get. And you have to at least say, okay, well, there's no ST elevation MI or there doesn't appear to be any signs of ischemia here and then move on. I think one thing that is more helpful is that with an electronic medical record being more available, we least have the old EKG to compare with usually in real time versus waiting for the medical record clerk to um, pull it off the shelf and haul it down to you an hour or two later. Okay, okay. Doctor, so, so then you can find out more about the past medical history in interpreting the ECG. Yep. And then certainly you at least have an old ECG to compare with, um, which may look a lot like the current one, and then maybe it's less concerning. Okay. Thank you very much, Jim. That That's really helpful. And, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action better diagnose and manage effective patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.